Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week finds us in the state of New York. As the most densely populated corner of the United States, New York City, in particular, is home to a staggering number of terrifying tales and urban legends, a surprising number of which come from underground. Many of them I'm sure you've heard before. Man-eating alligators in the sewer who started life as pets. Giant killer super rats that ruled the streets after Hurricane Sandy. Twisted and deformed mole people living in abandoned subway tunnels. Haunted pirate treasure hidden deep beneath Liberty Island. Personally, one of my favorite stops, if only for the feel of the place, is Governor's Island. If you haven't been, it's a little island in New York Harbor covered in old military buildings and fortifications, as well as many other historic buildings, some of which have been left to be retaken by nature. But there's a deeper history that lurks beneath the surface of Governor's Island, too. A history of executions by both hanging and firing squad, two abandoned cemeteries, and a mass grave. And yes, all of the bodies are still on the island. Despite all that, or maybe because of it, it's the feel of the place that always gets to me. The feel and the aesthetic 
particularly if you wander around and peer into some of the abandoned buildings. I've always had a soft spot for that post-apocalyptic aesthetic, and peering through the fogged windows of some of the old buildings there, seeing the peeling paint, creeping moss and foliage pushing up through cracked tiles, it sends a thrill down my spine just picturing it. But Governor's Island is just a quick pit stop on our way to a deeper, more complex tale this week. We're headed away from the lights and noise of the big city to the furthest tip of Long Island, where we find a little village named Montauk and the nearby state park, Camp Hero. Full disclaimer, aspects of the tale I'm about to tell you might sound a little familiar, and for good reason. There's a certain show that was heavily influenced by stories of what went down at Montauk. In fact, that was even its working title. But I don't want to give it all away just yet. In 1982, a man by the name of Preston B. Nichols published a book titled The Montauk Project, Experiment in Time. In his account, he detailed his participation in U.S. military experiments that involved traveling through time, telepathy, and, for good measure, as much as four decades of dubious experimentation on children. Nichols claimed that he had only just become aware of many of these details after the brainwashing he'd been subject to had apparently begun to unravel. All of it seemed pretty sensational and outlandish, to say the least. But when others began to come forward with corroborating stories, the plot quickly began to thicken. For years, Nichols had worked at Camp Hero on a variety of secret experiments often alongside a man named Al Bielek. During the 1970s, the two had worked on an electromagnetic contraption referred to as the Montauk Chair, a contraption that was designed to amplify the psychic powers of their test subjects, subjects who were mostly made up of young boys, including Bielek's brother, Duncan, who was himself a subject of time travel, having supposedly had his consciousness downloaded into a younger version of himself. Duncan, as it turns out, had manifested psychic abilities, which made him invaluable to the experiments. And not just any psychic abilities. If he concentrated hard enough, he could manifest objects out of thin air. These abilities made Duncan the star of the show, and he spent plenty of time in the Montauk chair, subjected to all kinds of experiments. The first was called the seeing eye. Duncan would be given a personal belonging of someone, a piece of clothing or a lock of hair, maybe a favorite possession, and he would be asked to concentrate. With the help of the chair, Duncan would be able to transport his consciousness into the person whose belonging he held. Almost like he was possessing them. He could see, hear, feel, and smell everything they did but was just shy of being able to actually control them. Although I'd say it's a fair guess that control was exactly what the end goal was. This is where a group called the Montauk Boys comes in, a series of boys who were abducted and subjected to experimentation of their own. According to Nichols, 
This included sending them through mysterious portals in space-time to unknown destinations, or having their minds altered to implant subconscious commands. In fact, years later, once Nichols and Bielek started talking more frequently about their experiences, a number of men came forward with newly uncovered memories of being abducted regularly from their homes and brainwashed. During the time the Montauk boys were being experimented on, Duncan's powers began to grow until he was able to reliably open a portal to different times and places, including to other parts of our solar system. Eventually, Nichols and some of his colleagues began to grow afraid of the power they wielded, and they hatched a plan to have Duncan help shut the program down, once and for all. Here's how Nichols describes it in his book. We finally decided we'd had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan while he was in the chair and simply whispering, The time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious, and the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty. But it didn't appear underground in the null point. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. While everyone in the facility was occupied with the chaos of the rampaging monster, Nichols took the opportunity to destroy the Montauk chair. The result was an end to the project, after which employees were brainwashed and the lower levels of the base were sealed with concrete. But despite that, Nichols and Beluk, until he died in 2011, were sure the experiments were still going on somewhere. Activity at the Camp Hero base may not have ceased entirely either. To this day, explorers still report hearing screams from the abandoned tunnels underneath the complex, and there are reports of high-level power usage in the area as well. This tale has a lot more threads and complexity to it than I've been able to dive into here, most surrounding Al Bielek and time travel including an entire thread that ties into the Philadelphia experiment of the Second World War and Bielik's origins from 1943. I don't want to drag you further down that rabbit hole, but if you're curious, there's plenty of places to dig deeper for details. But for now, I think it's time we found some stranger things of our own. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Samuel Marzioli. Samuel Marzioli is an Italian-Filipino writer of mostly dark fiction. His work has appeared in numerous publications and podcasts, including The Best of Apex 2016, Shock Totem, Tales from the Lake Volume 5 2018, and LeVar Burton Reads. To find out more information about his work, visit marzioli.blogspot.com. Children of the Night, join me for Samuel Marzioli's A Pocket of Madness, first published in Digital Horror Fiction, Volume 1, March 2018.
Janir stumbled naked through his backyard, his breath streaming through his teeth in cotton wisps. The moon was absent, and the stars shone in angry shade of red, as if their light had been distilled through the meat of someone's palm. With the street lamps off, he couldn't see beyond the boundaries of his property. But he didn't care, wouldn't stop, he had to keep on searching. Once he reached the centre of his yard, he kneeled, scrabbling through a layer of grass and shallow roots. He pressed his ear against the cold, damp earth. A faint rumble sounded deep below, growing louder as the source of the disturbance strengthened, sending soft vibrations through his skull. It's coming, he thought. It's coming and no one knows but me. He woke the next morning still naked, his hands and feet streaked with mud and dirt. The fact he had sleepwalked didn't bother him as much as the feeling the world had gone wrong, like the madness of an escape with all its defects and illusions. He told his wife Cathy about it while they finished breakfast at the kitchen table. Not that he had another episode, just the sense of abnormality he'd felt when he awoke. Honey, Cathy said, in that patient tone she used whenever Rachel was being difficult. Remember how upset you were when we moved in together? Or when you quit your job and started your home business? Not to mention the way you acted when Rachel was conceived. His breath caught and he transferred scolding eyes from her to Rachel in the living room. Rachel was rolling on the carpet amid stacks of still-sealed moving boxes and furniture gathered in a cluster. Their eyes locked. She waved, and he waved back, feigning a smile. That was low, he muttered. Wasn't meant to be, she said, and took him by the wrist. All I'm saying is, you don't like change. And ever since we started moving, change is all you've had. Once we settle in, I mean truly organise this clutter, I have no doubt you'll feel better. He fought the impulse to snatch his arm away, to free himself from the feel of scouring pads rubbing his skin raw. Yeah, maybe you're right, he said. But he couldn't bring himself to believe it. They spent the remainder of the day shuffling their belongings up and down the stairs, assigning essentials to drawers and closet space, and organising the furniture. The following day was Rachel's birthday. While their two-week move had been exacting, they managed to assemble the bones of a party plan while lying in bed that night. The next morning, Cathy woke Rachel early and took her on the pretense of a girl's day out. Janea stayed behind to decorate. He wanted the house to be spectacular, chock full of bright colours and shiny things, whatever it took to help Rachel forget the friends she'd moved away from and would probably never see again. But he had to admit, part of it was to assuage the glacier ache that formed whenever Rachel's birthday came around. When Cathy first told him she was pregnant, he wasn't ready to be a father yet. His notion of a baby was a needy gob of flesh that devoured all of space and time around it, 
like some diminutive black hole. He had even accused his wife of cheating, based on the razor-thin reason he always used a condom. Even his basic grasp of biology was enough to discredit his suspicions. But his mind had been set to automatic, fueled by insecurities, not evidence and logic. To his credit, he had embraced the truth well before his daughter was born. In time, she became the sunrise of his days and the moonlight of his evenings. He never believed he could feel that way about a child. But the last eight years of fatherhood had proven him many times the liar. When Rachel burst through the front door, trailed by a tired, plodding Cathy, the trappings had been set. Streamers spanned the house. Mylar balloons and banners were strewn about. Pin-up games of cartoon animals were fixed to the walls, and noisemakers of various shapes and sizes sat in bowls, awaiting a puff of air to bring their voices to life. I love it, she said, throwing herself at Jenna and crushing him in a monster hug. Looks great, said Cathy. You really outdid yourself. The great lump of ice inside Jenna melted to a speck. Anything for my baby girl. After a few rounds of party games and running through the sprinklers out back, they reconvened on the living room couch. Jenna and Kathy occupied the space on either side of Rachel as she tore through her gifts, her cheeks quivering from the strain of all her smiles. She received several toys, a dozen books, some stuffed animals, and last, though I certainly hope not least, said Jenna, a hula hoop. I've always wanted one of these, Rachel said, holding up the hula hoop. How did you know? Call it a... Father's intuition, said Jenna. Do you really like it? Yeah, it's awesome. A month passed before Jenna had another episode. This time, he wandered through the streets of his new neighbourhood, calling Rachel's name. The night dripped darkness thick as candle wax, smothering the world at the borders of his vision. Houses watched him as he passed, silently laughing as if he were the punchline to a joke he should have known but couldn't quite remember. When he woke, it felt as if his room had become untethered from the house. A blurred lens filtered out finer details, transforming everything into mere impressions of what they'd been before. Bolstered by the wave of panic, he rushed for the hallway, intent on finding Rachel. He didn't notice the bedroom door until he collided with it and crumpled to the floor. It's all in my mind, he told himself, staring up as stucco ceiling patterns arranged themselves and clarified before his eyes. It isn't real. His doctor had called his unusual experiences hypnopompic hallucinations a sort of augmented reality where gargantuan spiders appeared, vortices opened in thin air, and foreign words pasted themselves to the walls and ceiling like the pages of some ancient tome. With his recent bouts of sleepwalking, what he and Cathy had taken to calling episodes, things had only gotten worse. He felt trapped between two storm fronts, 
fearful of what he might think or do or say while his mind was lost in the tumult of their merging. Cathy had already gone to work that morning, so Jenna was left to take care of Rachel. They ate breakfast. Between each earnest bite, Rachel slopped her spoon into her cereal bowl and regaled him with stories of what she'd done so far that summer. Most of her stories involved various tricks she taught herself. Her word for a spastic dance she did while hooping that never failed to remind Jenna of someone shaking ants loose from their underwear. That's great, honey. I'm so glad you like it, he said. I've got some new tricks I want to show you. Okay, but I've got a lot of work to finish first. He wasn't done by the allotted time, but he dutifully trudged out back and draped himself across the edge of the deck. Their backyard was a quarter-acre lawn, with a strip of earth separating it from the surrounding fences. A draining system with an iron grate had been installed where the ground bowled in its centre. Rachel had come to love that grate. She used it as a stage. Since her birthday, not a day went by where she didn't drag one or both of her parents out back for an impromptu performance. Presenting Rachel, the hula hoop queen, Rachel announced. He tried his best to give his full attention. But as each new trick piled on, various projects gambled through his mind and he could think of nothing else. It's all for today, honey. Come on, Daddy, Rachel begged. One last one. Save it for next time, he said, rising to his feet. It'll just take a second. I said no. Please, come on, just one. God damn it, Rachel, not right now. Rachel went still. Her shoulders slumped in a quiet sulk and her bottom lip bulged between the wet lines of her tears. Jenna retreated to the patio. Before he went inside, he meant to apologise, to promise his undivided attention the next time she had a show. But when he turned, the world went still and all sound drained into an airy silence, save for the wild beating of his heart. Rachel was gone. Only her hula hoop remained, its plastic rim circling the grate like a target on a map. When Cathy returned from work, Jenna was seated on their backyard deck, picking at the knowledge of Rachel's absence as if it were a fresh scab covering an old wound. The house is a mess, she said. What were you two doing in there? He took the barest moment to meet her gaze. Whatever she saw in his expression made her face blanch. What is it? And then, when she finally caught the measure of his silence. Where's Rachel? His arms felt like dead things, fastened to his shoulder by a twist of string. But he managed a shrug. Cathy rushed inside. Through the open windows... He could hear her scramble through the house, scouring the rooms, ransacking the closets, raking through the disarray he'd left behind as she screamed their daughter's name. When her search proved as fruitless as his had, she came back outside, her eyes and cheeks a mess of dripping black mascara. She can't have gone far. You search by foot and I'll take my car. We'll... No, said Jenna shaking his head. 
I tried already. Even when knocking door to door. It's useless. How can you say that? Because it's true. Didn't I warn you? Didn't I say the world had gone wrong? A pocket of madness opened and swallowed up our daughter. I haven't figured out how or why, but she's still here, waiting for us to find her. Something like revulsion brimmed in Cathy's eyes. He knew she wouldn't understand. He barely understood, and he had been pondering it for hours. He scanned the backyard one last time, weaving through the mat of drying grass to the iron grate that crowned its centre. His suspicions sunk through its slots into the web of black hiding underneath. A sudden chill leached the warmth from him, and he shivered and turned, seeking refuge in Cathy's face. But there was nothing for him there either, except more cold and darkness. Cathy called the police. When the officer arrived, Jenner told her what he knew, though after Cathy's contemptuous reaction he fell short of sharing every detail. The officer searched the house and property, making a point to mention all the things that had made Rachel's disappearance peculiar. The slick, high panels of the fence. The rusted gate lock that wouldn't budge. The shallow catch basin below the grate, with a fist-sized drain pipe underneath. She could have climbed out a window, the officer suggested. No, said Jenna. I would have seen it. Jenna could read her doubt written clear as text across her face. She had her theory. Negligent father dozes off. But for Jenna, the simple answers had been precluded. In Rachel's last moments, he'd held her reflection, could almost feel her distress bleeding from the glass of the patio door. Though he hadn't recognised the importance at the time, she'd vanished exactly where she'd stood. Cathy took Jenna on a drive around the city. She grilled him for information as they took turns shouting their daughter's name out the open window. He only reiterated what he had told her before. Vague ideas, the details of which still left him grasping at absurdities and shadows. Cathy cried, refused to say another word to him besides, That's crazy. You're crazy. And, What's happening to you? She dropped to the couch when they got back home, clutching her cell phone to her chest as if it were a lucky talisman. He sat beside her, held her hand. We'll find her soon. I promise, he said, the dull echo of the lie thudding through the cavern of their living room. Night came before Cathy's sobs slipped into the long, deep grooves of sleep. He gave her hand a gentle kiss, and then made his way outside. The stars were gone, and the moon was a waning crescent. It gave the sky an empty feel, as if the heavens were tired things sliding into the dark side of eternity, and the little globe of earth lay abandoned in the universe. It felt like too much of a coincidence to not mean something, but he couldn't imagine what. Lying flat on his belly by the great He listened to the doldrums, hoping Rachel's voice would echo from the ground and justify every single word he had said. I'll find you, Rachel, he thought, before the early morning came and, with a warm, soft blanket of wind, lulled him into an anxious sleep.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rachel stood on the grate her hula hoop gliding around her waist with the smooth grace of rings orbiting satin. Watch me, Daddy. Bet you I can reach a thousand. No way. That's a sucker's bet, said Jenna, seated on the deck, his chin resting on his upturned hands. You're doing great, honey, said another Jenna, sprawled out on the ground beside Rachel. From the second Jenna's viewpoint, Rachel eclipsed the sun. Its rays gilded her with an aura bright as fire, and he reached through the increasing distance for the silhouette of her face. Watch me, Daddy, Rachel said again, but her voice was deeper now, as if time had stalled, pouring her words out slow as dripping batter. The earth began to crawl, a sluggish shake that pitched both Jenna's to their backs. They recovered in time to watch as the great slots parted, transformed into a mouth. Rachel fell inside. The mouth clamped shut around her. Its metal teeth grinded through her flesh and bones, swallowing her and the guttural screams that followed. Jenna on the deck scrambled on his hands and knees, the shocked ovals of his eyes lingering long after he vanished. Jenna on the ground scurried forward and gazed into the endless gullet of the drainpipe. Far below, something returned his stare. A vile thing cloaked in black, the suggestion of a face split in two by a wide, salacious grin. Jenna jolted back before the face receded, and the mouth reverted to a harmless grate again. What are you doing? He hauled himself around to find Cathy gaping at him through a crack in the patio door, dressed in her pyjamas. I found Rachel! Cathy's strangled moans trailed her across the lawn, and she fell beside Jenna on hands and knees. She's inside, he said. Help me pull her out! Cathy wrenched the grate off and Jenna thrust his arms into the catch basin. His fingers squirmed, scraping at the walls, slithering halfway into the drainpipe too slim to admit his bulk. When he withdrew his hands at last, 
All he had to show for it were two fists full of brown sludge, slick as oil. Words hovered out of Jenna's reach. He licked the dryness from his lips, gazing at Cathy in quiet desperation. She looked too pale to be alive, her face frozen in grief, in shock, in terror. Cathy, you have to believe me! He inched forward on his knees, reaching out to her, sludge drooling through his splayed fingers. I saw her! She was there! Her eyes met his, but they stared blind, devoid of understanding. Jenna, she said, a thrill note of condemnation before she hurried back inside. Jenna wasn't surprised when Cathy told him she was leaving. The months had grown long teeth and bitter claws between updates from police that never brought good news. Nightly screaming arguments only made things worse, washing over them like an acetone solution, loosening their bonds until they finally slid apart. He could see the change come over her. It was in the way she stroked his face, her coddling inflection, the wet glass of her eyes looking through him to a place full of reminiscing and regret. You have every right to fall apart, she said, after she'd packed her things in matching suitcases and stuffed her car with boxes. But I can barely hold myself together. If I stay, both of us might break, and where would that leave Rachel? I am trying to help, he said. I know. I will find her. Okay. I'm not crazy. Her eyebrows furrowed and her lips flattened to a line, but she had no response for that one. Jenna remained in the family home. He drifted soundlessly from room to room, speaking his daughter's name only in sobs and cracking whispers. He spent most of his time holding vigil in the backyard, hoping to fall asleep and find one last glimmer of his daughter in the dust and cobwebs of his brain. But he couldn't sleep, much less dream, and soon the prospect of a hypnopompic visitation felt as vacant as the house. Unlike Cathy, he never saw the point of taping posters up to windows or handing flyers out to callous passers-by. He much preferred to search the internet, sewing a quilt from disparate information where the borders were all frayed and the pieces didn't fit. Still, some of it proved interesting. On a personal blog, he read about a man from Gilbertville who had excavated a swimming pool in his backyard shortly before his wife disappeared. On a forum for sharing paranormal experiences, A woman from Cedar Rapids claimed a hole left from a tree trunk removal had gobbled up her dog. On a website dedicated to missing children, a mother in Eldridge reported last seeing her son while he was digging for buried treasure in a field adjacent to their house. He sent all three of them an email. A month passed before someone responded. Pick my brain if you think it'll help, the mother from Eldridge wrote. She signed it simply, Mary. The sight of it brought a too rare smile to Jenna's face. In and by itself, her message promised him no answers. 
but added to the modest pile of what he knew, it felt like hope. A true step forward when all he had were a series of retreats. He wrote her back immediately. When Jenna pulled his car up to the curb, Mary was waiting on the sidewalk, buried in the shade of her front yard's looming oak. From the look of her, she could have been any suburban mom he had ever met, with sagging sweats and a food-stained tea that spoke of many mornings hustling breakfast and wrangling kids out to the school bus. But the dark halos around her eyes exposed a different truth, of sleepless nights, of days spent crying, and the underlying pain of loss that had put a touch of madness in her. He would know. He'd seen that same look from the almost stranger who watched him from his mirrors. Mary, he said. You must be Jenna. That's me. You sure you wouldn't be more comfortable at a restaurant or a coffee shop? This is farther from my house than I prefer to be already. He nodded and she turned, leading him the several steps to the field beside her house. It was a flat expanse of dirt, acres wide and twice as long. Scattered tufts of weeds added a splash of gold to the russet-coloured earth, and a timid tree stood out in the middle like a tourist who'd lost his way and refused to ask directions. Over there, Mary said, motioning to the remnants of a hole. It was smoothed by wind and rain into an ankle-deep impression. Jenna stooped before it. That's where he was when I last saw him, she said. I never meant to let him play alone, but his brothers were with my husband, his best friend was sick, and I was just so damn tired. I told him, don't you wander off, stay where I can see you. As if that helped. Anyone else see it happen? he said pointing toward the picket fence and the curtained windows of the closest neighbour's house. Just me. He poked at the centre of the impression with a finger. What was going on before he vanished? Mary's lips spread in a frown, exposing too many teeth. He was digging. He must have dug a good two feet deep because I remember thinking how strange it was to see the upper half of him like a severed torso gliding back and forth. As I said before, I turned away for a second and the next time I looked up, she crossed her arms and shut her mouth, as if holding back a tremble and a blooming need to wail. What happened next? he asked, pinching at the brown sludge sticking to his fingers, the same kind he found beneath the grate back home. I ran. I ran and ran and ran. When I got to him, all that was left was a black hole that ran too deep. Miles of it punched into the ground. And in its centre, she choked, pressed her palm against her mouth and held it there. Go on, he said, heart pounding, knees trembling from the weight of anticipation. What was it? He knew the answer before he even asked the question. Different words for brush strokes, a divergent colour palette, but still the same image painted on the canvas of his mind. Nevertheless, he had to know, had to hear it for himself. I looked down, and it looked back, grinning, 
knowing what it had done and daring me to stop it. I think a lot about that moment, taking the view from various perspectives, and I always come to one conclusion. What's that? Hell isn't a lake of fire. It's a place absent warmth and light. That's what I saw. That's where it lives. And that's where it took our children. Jenna left Eldridge in a better mood. Nowhere like elation, but greater than his previous despair. Now that he confirmed the madness was real, he realised his dreams and hallucinations had only heightened his awareness, not hindered it. He wasn't broken. Cathy was wrong. The police were wrong. Only he was right. For months he'd felt useless, a spectre haunting his own house, doomed to repeat the motions of his guilt and grief. Now, when he got home, he surged through every room to reclaim his dominion, pounding on the walls as if they were war drums, leading the advancing front. He prepared for another vigil. This time he was armed with a shovel, a wheelbarrow, and the knowledge that irrationality had infested his backyard, its spindly roots burrowed deep into the ground. Anything was possible. Maybe he'd dig enough to penetrate the earth's outer core of liquid fire. Maybe he'd descend still deeper, carve a tunnel through the centre of the planet and come out the other side. But maybe, if luck or chance were with him, he'd pierce the black heart of hell itself and save his daughter. Rachel, he said, leaning on the shovel's handle as he peered into the grate. Silence ensconced that solitary word, so he continued. I'm coming for you. He began to dig, filling the barrow to its limits before dumping the contents at the farthest corner of his yard. Five feet down and still he kept on digging. Ten feet and the thought of quitting never came. Hours passed, the mound of dirt became a hillock. It was only when he reached twenty feet below the backyard surface that he dropped at the bottom of the pit, gasping and choking on the salt and tang of earth. He looked up and saw the eye of the moon squinting down at him. The weight of gravity pinned him to the ground, carving furrows at his edges like the chalk lines of corpses. Numbness spread throughout his body, even as the dirt and rocks and clay absorbed him, dragging him down into a fitful sleep. Jenna woke the next morning. Red-hot agony threaded through his muscles. The skin of his fingers were cracked and wet with ruptured blisters. Like silhouettes thrown across a curtain, he had only a vague sense of what he had dreamed, but they fueled the maelstrom of his emotions, informed by the failure of last night. Fear, rage and sadness swimming through his mind in equal portions. He climbed to his knees. He pressed his shaking hands together like a swollen steeple in a child's bedtime prayer. You can take anything you want. Anyone you want. You don't need her. Please, give her back. When that failed to elicit a response, he shouted, You bastard! He slammed a hand down, held it against the damp soil. 
show yourself, meet me face to face. Unless you're too much of a coward. The ground thumped against his palm. The feeling that something unclean had touched him made his skin crawl, and his heart beat to the rhythm of his panicked breaths. Colours muted. Trees faltered. The wind slowed to a pervading calm, and the ground began to shake as if it were alive, a cantankerous beast awakened from its slumber. Mounds formed along the pit's walls, the outlines of hands quivering underneath their surface, stretching and tearing at the elastic skin of earth. Jenna thought of boils forming, of bloated abscesses and maggots swimming in the shallows of a gangrenous infection. He wanted to cover his eyes, to pretend he couldn't see them, but quicker than he could form a plan of disregard, whole arms burst loose and seized him. I take it back, he shouted, thrashing, struggling to free himself. I didn't mean it. They threw him down, forcing his face into the dirt. Darkness leaked from the ground like rivulets of oil. Jenna could do nothing but watch as the blackness surrounded him, forming tentacles that inched worm-like beneath his clothing, crowding into every crevice, every hole of his body. Once the last of them disappeared inside him, the arms released their grip and slid back into their burrows. No more, he said, sobbing at the invasion, the violation. I'm sorry, no more, I... His jaw unhinged with a grinding pop. He screamed unformed words as the muscles of his cheeks tore with the stretching of a smile. Once the line reached from ear to ear, his mouth opened in a face-splitting grin. It's not my child. The words came unwanted, tracing the seams of past transgressions he'd hoped never to remember. I never wanted a daughter, much less to be a father. And then, chanting, sobbing, cackling all at once. God damn it, Rachel, not right now. God damn it, Rachel, not right now. The screech of wheels and the blare of horns confronted him. It wrenched his attention to a clear view of the almost collision in the street. When he turned back again, he found himself sprawled out on the lawn. No hillock of dirt. No signs of excavation. Only narrow holes riddled the backyard. But whether proof of the existence of the arms, or something he had dug himself, he couldn't force himself to make it matter. Like eyes, the holes watched him as he staggered toward the patio. Like mouths, they formed silent taunts and mockeries. After he went inside, they laughed as he closed the door and sealed himself in the quiet condemnation of his house. Jenner paced the hallway, shivering despite stifling heat blasting from a corner vent. He was too aware of the silence that surrounded him, a mass that spread out along the walls like a parasite of broken homes. Once he backtracked to the entryway again, he clenched his hands and screamed, letting the sound dry into a gurgle. He continued pacing, 
Hi, Kathy, he muttered. You'll never believe what happened. They found Rachel and she's alive. Come quickly. He shook his head, scowling at the cruelty of the suggestion. Hi, Kathy. I know this will be hard to believe, but I know how to get Rachel back. At least I have a plan. Come meet me at the house. He shook his head again, juggling the mental weight of every word to strike a perfect balance. Hi, Kathy. It's Jenna. I have something to tell you. Please, come over. It's not the kind of thing that should be said over the phone. This time he nodded, satisfied. Ever since the morning, he'd kept his mind secret even from himself, not wanting to complicate the process with emotions or the risk of second thoughts. All he allowed himself to know was that he needed her. He pulled his cell out from his pocket and dialed. The phone trilled three times before the line picked up. Hello? Hi, Kathy. It's me. Jenna sat on Rachel's bed as he waited for Kathy's arrival, making lazy turns with the hula hoop clutched in his hands. Thoughts crowded in, unfolding in bursts of happy memories. The day he and Kathy met. The day they got married. The day Rachel was born and he held her for the first time. He savoured the sweet taste of them, and wept at the failure of his thoughts and actions that had marred so much of his family's fleeting time together. As soon as her key jingled in the front door lock, he went to greet her. He risked a smile, but it soon withered when she counted with a grimace, an expression so much like condescension in that insufficient light. You look exhausted, she said. Are you still having episodes? No. Hallucinations, then? No. These days, I haven't slept enough to have either one. He meant it as a joke of sorts, but his weak laughter only seemed to rattle her. I'm glad you came. I almost didn't. Why? The sound of your voice over the phone was different. Not like you at all. He gave no explanation, just shrugged and cut a path to the patio door. She didn't follow until he beckoned, and even then only after she scanned the clutter of the house. Garbage over flowing trash bins, dirty clothes left in slapdash piles, a monolith of unwashed dishes filling up the sink. The sorry state of the backyard only deepened her hesitation. Her eyes skimmed and stumbled over every hole as if puzzling out their meaning, their purpose. Jenna, why am I here? she asked. He didn't have the words to make sense of all his thoughts. The last time they had spoken, Kathy told him she didn't understand him anymore. He supposed part of him wanted to explain himself, to let her know that everything he had done was always about their daughter. Always. You remember what I said about how Rachel disappeared? I didn't tell you the whole truth. He held out a hand, as if inviting her to take it. She made only a small step forward, skirting the edge of the deck. I was where you are now, and she was over there, he said, pointing to the grate. 
I needed to get back to project plans and deadlines, but she kept begging me to stay. Just one more time, Daddy. She only wanted to make me proud. And I... What are you trying to tell me? What did you do? I yelled at her. No, worse than that. I swore and hurt her with my words. He headed for the centre of the lawn, clearing the grate in a single stride. Ever since then, I've wondered what would have happened if I'd just put my work aside and watched her play. What would have been the harm in ten more minutes? Maybe she wouldn't have gone missing. Maybe you and I would still be together. Is that what this is about? She shook her head. A moment of anger didn't take away our daughter. It's not your fault, isn't it? He said, averting his eyes to the shadows of the grate. She rushed at him, arms wide with the promise of an embrace. For a moment, he almost let her, longed to feel her liquid warmth after so many months of drought. But the moment passed as soon as she stepped on the grate and he held his hand out to stop her. This isn't about me, his stomach churned. Don't you see? I can't let that be the last memory Rachel has of her father. I need to make things right. What more can you do than what has been tried already? That's just it. You can't say we've tried everything already, because I know I haven't. Last night I wrestled with the darkness and the darkness won. It always wins, always has. It got me thinking, maybe yielding to its rules is the only way to bring her back. Kathy began to cry. You're doing it again. You're not making any sense. Maybe so. I have no idea if this will work, and I might be as crazy as you think. I guess we'll both find out in a moment. Jenna touched her cheek and mouthed, I love you. He turned to face the other way, but kept his ears perked for her rebuff, a fresh promise of abandonment. The quiet lingered behind him like an accusation, crushing him with guilt. The guessing proved too much to bear, so he turned around again. Kathy wasn't there. Please, Jenna said, weeping as he kneeled and pressed his forehead to the ground in supplication. I have nothing more to offer. Seconds turned to minutes, minutes turned to hours, but still Rachel didn't reappear. The sun dawdled through the sky, slow as a funeral procession, before weariness and self-loathing consumed him. He closed his eyes. Still clinging to the tatters of hope, he rattled off a sigh and gave himself to the void behind his eyelids. When he woke the next morning, he found Rachel lying fetal on the grate. Her skin clung to her bones like wet tissue, viscous grime covering her from head to toe. She squinted against the harsh glare of daylight, but remained otherwise inert, didn't seem to realise where she was. With everything that had happened, Jenna didn't have the will or strength to laugh or celebrate. He simply scooped Rachel into his arms, 
and wept. The police began another search, this time for Cathy. Jenna and Rachel were forced to live in their house for the duration of the new investigation. Jenna took precautions to make sure Rachel never touched that infected backyard ground again. He ripped the catch basin and drain pipe out, filled the backyard with cement, and even melted the grate into a useless lump of iron. Rachel was never the same. Sometimes she liked to make divots and stand above them, clapping her fingers to her palm at Jenna as if to wave goodbye. Sometimes she lingered over bathtubs, sinks and storm drains and scowled into them, as if a face that only she could see were in them, staring out. She didn't speak and rarely moved, even when they relocated across the country. That is, unless she was playing with her hula hoop. It was the only time a spark of life returned, shining brightly behind the dull, dry roundness of her eyes. Watch me, Daddy, she still liked to say on those occasions. And he did, despite the passing decades, despite her auburn hair fading into grey and the soft pink roundness of her cheeks sagging into lines. He always did. That was Samuel Marzioli's A Pocket of Madness, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is the author of the grim, dark, steampunk, madcap fantasy novel Brothers of the Knife, first in the Children of Bane series, and co-authors the supernatural crime noir thriller series The Path of Ra with Lee Murray. He has narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Pseudopod, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, among others, and is currently producing and narrating the audiobook for the first Path of Raw novel, Hounds of the Underworld. He has been the recipient of the Australian Shadows Award three times, and New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award four times. Find him on the web at dan.raybarts.com. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we'd love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it certainly isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror for all of us, and a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage. Also, like us or leave a review on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A rating or review might not seem like a whole lot, but it's a massive help in keeping us on the charts so we can infect the minds of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, 
Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme music by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unravel your reality with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.